Forever, O oh Lord, your word is settled in heaven. We thank you, Father, for opening the eyes of our understanding, our spirits, and revealing to us who we are in Christ and what we have because of his great sacrifice. We bless you, Father. We love you. And we magnify your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. We want to continue the series on biblical prosperity that we started several weeks ago. We're using as a text scripture, Psalm 35, verse 27, which says, Let them shout for joy and be glad that favor my righteous cause. Yea, let them say continually, Let the Lord be magnified, which has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. Now, we've gone over this scripture several times, but I, I, I really feel like it's important to say it every time we read it. Notice the connection between prosperity and righteousness. And notice the connection between prosperity and what you say. Now, we having the benefit of the entire word of God, we're able to see things from a big picture standpoint because of the, the truth that the word of God reveals to us, both the Old Testament and New Testament. And we know that when the Bible talks about the things that we say, we recognize that that's the operation of faith. It's defined by the Bible as the operation of faith. For example, in uh, Numbers chapter 14, after the children of Israel sent the 12 spies into the promised land, and they came back with a report of what a good land it was, but 10 of the 12 took the positions they couldn't take the land because the people that lived in that land was stronger than they were. Caleb and Joshua, on the other hand, saw the same things, but they said, we can do it because God's on our side. God's with us. But the, the people, the congregation of Israel, believed the majority report. And so they lifted up their voice and they cried unto God and they said, it would be better for us to have died in Egypt or to die in this wilderness and they blamed God for doing the wrong thing, wronging them by bringing them to the edge of the promised land. God said to Moses, tell them that I will do unto them according to what they've spoken in my ears. So we see from the outset, we see even from the example of God creating the earth, he created it and everything that was in it by the words that he spoke. So the things that we say are of utmost importance. The Bible teaches us that the things that we say are spiritual forces that come from within, the very center of our being. So here where David is saying, let them shout for joy that favor my righteous cause, he's including prosperity in righteousness. He's including prosperity in the redeeming, the redeeming power of God that was fulfilled through the sacrifice of Jesus and the shedding of his blood. But just being a part of righteousness or just being a part of redemption isn't enough. We've got to say it. Because in what we say is where we take hold of the things of God. It's not just a matter of God doing these things for us through the work of Jesus. Thank God he did. But in order for us to take hold of it, we have to speak it from our mouths. The Bible teaches us that faith is believing in the heart and saying with the mouth. And so here's the very reason why it's so important for us to, to speak and to, to proclaim the things that Jesus redeemed us from and proclaim the things that he redeemed us unto. So he says, let them say continually, let the Lord be magnified, which has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. What we say is everything. Now turn with me over to Deuteronomy chapter 8. We want to read through this list of promises that God has made to Israel and the people, his people in the old covenant. Beginning in verse 1, it says, All these commandments which I command thee this day shall you observe to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers. And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness, to humble thee and to prove thee and to know what was in your heart whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna, which thou knowest not, 
Neither did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread only, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord does man live. Thy raiment waxed not old upon thee, neither did thy foot swell these forty years. Thou shalt also consider in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord thy God chasteneth thee. Therefore thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord thy God bringeth thee into a good land. Folks, God's got good things planned for us. The Lord thy God bringeth thee into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and depths that spring out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land wherein thou mayest eat bread without scarceness. Thou shalt not lack anything in it, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills thou mayest dig brass. When thou hast eaten and art full, then thou shalt bless the Lord thy God for the good land which he has given thee. Here's the warning. Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes which I command thee this day. Lest when thou hast eaten and are full and hast built goodly houses and dwell therein. And when thy herds and thy flocks multiply and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied. And all that thou hast is multiplied. Then thy heart be lifted up and forget the Lord thy God which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led thee through that great and terrible wilderness wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions and drought, where there was no water, who brought thee forth water out of the rock of flint, who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee and that he might prove thee to do thee good at thy latter end. And thou shalt say in thine heart, My power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swear unto thy fathers, as it is this day. We keep reading that because I want to build on the inside of you an understanding of God's will for your well-being in every area. It sounds like when Moses is speaking on behalf of God, it sounds like God planned for everything in this promised land. It sounds like he made provisions for anything and everything that we would ever need. It talks about eating without scarceness. It talks about not lacking anything in it. Well, that would include the things that he just identified or enumerated, but it would also include other things that aren't on the list. God made a promised land for Israel where they would never have lack. And the only, the only restriction, the only warning is don't forget that it was God that gave it to you. That's the only restriction he put on it. He just said, beware that you don't forget that it was God that did it. You know, if you look at some things where our country is concerned, the founding fathers talked a lot about how things would change after the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution were created and ratified and, and approved of by the different colonies. There were statements that were made about the coming generations. And they were concerned that the coming generations would take for granted the things that they fought for us to have. Apparently, that's the way the devil works. Because that's the warning that God gives the people of Israel. It's absolute. The promises are absolute. Keep the word of God and these things will take place. Just don't forget that it was God that gave it to you. So I think we have to be on our guard in every area of life. Not just finances, but in every area as well that we don't take the things of God for granted, that we don't take God's goodness and his mercy for granted. That's the warning that he's giving here. He's saying after these things have taken place in your life, after your gold and silver is multiplied and everything you have is multiplied, he simply says don't forget that it was God that did it. So it's talking about an attitude of heart then, isn't it? It's talking about making sure that our heart stays open and right toward God to make sure we keep a thankful attitude 
rather than take things for granted. Now look with me over to Deuteronomy chapter 11. Beginning in verse 1, Therefore thou shalt love the Lord thy God, and keep his charge and his statutes and his judgments and his commandments always. And know you this day, for I speak not with your children which have not known, which have not seen the chastisement of the Lord your God, his greatness, his mighty hand, and his stretched out arm, and his miracles and his acts which he did in the midst of Egypt unto Pharaoh the king of Egypt and unto all of his land. And what he did unto the army of Egypt, unto their horses and to their chariots, and how he made the water of the Red Sea to overflow them as they pursued after you, and how the Lord has destroyed them unto this day. And what he did unto you in the wilderness until you came unto this place. Folks, there was no army, there was no people in the promised land. The Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Amalekites, and, and whoever else was there. There was no people, no army that was greater than the army of Egypt that God had already destroyed on behalf of the children of Israel. In other words, when the ten spies came to the promised land and came back with an evil report saying, we can't take the land because the people in there are stronger than us, were any of those people or any of those armies stronger than Egypt that had already been conquered and defeated? See, the devil does not want you to build on the success that you've already uh, attained. He doesn't want you to build on God's goodness to deliver you in the past. But the Bible uses this over and over again. It's God saying, don't you remember how I destroyed Egypt for you? Who were the Canaanites compared to Egypt? Nobody. Who were the Amalekites compared to Egypt? Nobody. Who were any of those people in comparison to Egypt? Nobody had a standing army that was as strong as Egypt. Egypt was the world superpower of that day. But the children of Israel forgot about that. They didn't take the same position as Caleb and Joshua. Who said, look at what God's already done for us. This is a piece of cake for him. This is a lot easier than what he's already done. Folks, in the same way, God has redeemed you from the bondage of sin and death. The Bible says the law of sin and death has no power over us any longer because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made us free. So whatever situation you and I face, it's nothing in comparison to what God's already done for us. And the Bible says over and over again, if God's done that for us, if he's already given us his best, what, is the, what are these small things that we face? Why should we give credibility or why should we give concern or have concern about these lesser things that we face, knowing that God has already delivered us from the greatest bondage that there is? He goes on. Verse 6, And what he did unto Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, the sons of Reuben, how the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up, and their households, and their tents, all, and all their substance that was in their possession in the midst of all Israel. But your eyes have seen all the great acts of the Lord which he did. Therefore shall you keep his commandments, which I command you this day, that you may be strong and go in and possess the land whether you go to possess it, and that you may prolong your days in the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers to give unto them and to their seed, a land that flows with milk and honey, for the land whither thou goest in to possess it is not as the land of Egypt from which you came out, where you sowed your seed and watered it with your foot as a garden of herbs. But the land whither you go to possess it is a land of hills and valleys, and drinketh water of the rain of heaven, a land which the Lord thy God careth for. The eyes of the Lord thy God are always upon it from the beginning of the year even unto the end of the year. And it shall come to pass, if you shall hearken diligently unto my commandments, which I command you this day, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all of your heart and with all of your soul, that I will give you the rain of your land in his due season, the first rain and the latter rain, that thou mayest gather in thy corn and thy wine and thine oil. And I will send grass in the fields for thy cattle, that thou mayest eat and be full. Take heed to yourselves. Here's another warning. Take heed to yourselves that your heart be not deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. 
And then the Lord's wrath be kindled against you, and he shut up the heaven that there be no rain, and that the land yield not her fruit, unless ye perish quickly from off the good land which the Lord giveth thee. Therefore shall you lay up these words in your heart and in your soul, and bind them for a sign upon your hand, that they may be as frontlets between your eyes. And you shall teach them your children, speaking of them which thou sittest in thy house, when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down and when thou risest up. In other words, keep it fresh in your memory what God's done for you. And thou shalt write them upon the doorpost of thine house and upon thy gates, that your days may be multiplied and the days of your children in the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers to give them as the days of heaven upon the earth. God's telling them very simply, now look at how, look at how easy it is. Look at how simple the, the plan of God is for us to walk in the fullness of his blessing. Keep the word. Remember that it was God that delivered you from your enemies and maintain a thankful heart. How tough is that? And when he talks about this, when, whenever I read these, every time I read these descriptions about the good land that flows with milk and honey, watered by the rains of heaven and all that kind of stuff. It creates in me, I don't even know what exact picture I could relate it to, but it creates in me a place of peace. It just creates this, I don't know how to say any, any different than that. It creates in me and in my heart this place, this location of absolute peace where there's protection, where there's no enemy. Or any, any enemies that are there have been defeated. And that's how God wants it to be. And he says so in this last phrase that we just read. As the days of heaven upon the earth. Now remember Jesus when he taught his disciples to pray. They came to him. They said, Master, teach us to pray. John told, taught his disciples to pray. So he teach us. And then he gives them what the church world calls the Lord's Prayer. It's really the, the uh, disciples' prayer. But anyway... That doesn't have the same catchy ring to it, I guess. And Jesus very simply says, the, pray, told them, taught them to pray that the will of God would be done on the earth just like it is in heaven. Thy will be done, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Now, folks, I want you to realize something. From the beginning, and continuing unto this day and through all the days of the church age. The kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is defined as where the will of God is done on the earth just like it is in heaven. And if we look back to the creation account, we see that God made a perfect, a perfect world. Before sin came in on the scene, there was nothing that could hurt or harm mankind. There was no lack whatsoever. There was nothing that man needed or ever would need that wasn't already available and, and created for his benefit here on the earth. So here where it's talking about as the days of heaven on the earth, it's talking about where the will of God is done on the earth just like it is in heaven. Well, what are things like in heaven? We don't know a whole lot about it, but what we do know shows us that it's perfect. What we do know about it is that there's nothing that could hurt or harm mankind. There's certainly no lack and that's the way God, since it's the way he created things in heaven, he never changes. That's why he created things on the earth to be exactly the same. Now, man's sin messed that up. But it doesn't change the fact that God wants you and I to exist in such a condition on the earth, in our lives, where we experience only the will of God, only the good things that God has provided for us. That's his will. Well, if we know it's his will, it's something, then, therefore, that we can put our faith on. Faith begins where the will of God is known. So when we see these verses of Scripture, these passages of Scripture, that define and describe all the good things that God has for us, that gives us the ability, therefore, to believe in what his word says and, therefore, speak from our mouths So that it becomes a reality in our lives. Deuteronomy chapter 28. Beginning in verse 1. 
And it shall come to pass if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God to observe and to do all of his commandments which I command thee this day, that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come on thee. Not just one per person. All these blessings shall come upon thee and overtake thee. If thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. Blessed shalt thou be in the city. And blessed shalt thou be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your body and the fruit of your ground. And of the fruit of your cattle. The increase of thy kind and thy flocks of thy sheep. Blessed shalt be thy basket and thy store. Blessed shalt thou be when thou comest in, and blessed shalt thou be when thou goest out. The Lord shall cause thine enemies that rise up against thee to be smitten before thy face. They shall come out against thee one way and flee before thee seven ways. The Lord shall command the blessing in all, upon thee and in thy storehouses, and in all that thou settest thine hand unto. And he shall bless thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. The Lord shall establish thee a holy people unto himself. As he has sworn unto thee, if thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God and walk in his ways. And all the people of the earth shall see that thou art called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of thee. And the Lord shall make thee plenteous in goods, in the fruit of thy body, in the fruit of thy cattle, and in the fruit of thy ground, in the land which the Lord sware unto thy fathers to give thee. The Lord shall open unto thee his good treasure, the heaven, to give the rain unto thy land in his season. And to bless all the work of thy hand, and thou shalt lend unto many nations, and thou shalt not borrow. And the Lord shall make thee the head and not the tail, and thou shalt be above only, and thou shalt not be beneath, if that thou hearken unto the commandments of the Lord thy God, which I command thee this day, to observe and to do them. And thou shalt not go aside from any of the words which I command thee this day, to the right hand or to the left, to go after other gods to serve them. Same thing he says over and over and over again. Remember the Bible rule is in the mouth of two or three witnesses. Let every word be established. So this is not some doctrine, pie in the sky doctrine that man has come up with. This is something that God has declared over and over and over again. Now the first argument against this that the devil will always bring to us is, yeah, well, but that was just for the Jews. That was just for the Jews. Well, there are several ways that we can answer that or refute that. One is Hebrews chapter 8 verse 6 says, We have a better covenant established upon better promises. Now, it doesn't say we have a different covenant. It says we have a better covenant. It doesn't say we have a new covenant. It says we have a better covenant. Now, the reason that I say that, and, and even Jesus said on the last night that he was with his disciples, a new covenant I give unto you. He wasn't saying that there's a brand new covenant that bypassed the blessing of Abraham or the covenant that God made with Abraham. He's saying that that covenant is fulfilled. And it becomes new because the difference in the, uh, the old covenant and the new covenant has to do with the redemptive work of God. It has to do with the new birth, the new creation that we become when we accept Jesus into our hearts as, as our Lord and Savior. But probably the greatest answer to the idea that the devil brings against us is over in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Now, why did he redeem us? The Bible says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. The curse of the law has already been identified here in these passages that we read in Deuteronomy. It's the curse of disobedience. It's the evil that comes upon us if we choose to disobey God's commandments. So again, Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from that curse of the law. Why did he redeem us from the curse of the law? Notice verse 14. That or so that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles. Folks, you can't get any clearer than that. Christ redeemed us. Again, notice it's uh, all connected with the redemptive work of Jesus. It's all connected with the substitutionary work that he undertook to deliver us. It's all connected with Christ as our substitute. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Verse 14 again. For this purpose, 
that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles and that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Well, what's the promise of the Spirit through faith? The new birth. So God's connecting the blessing of Abraham. Here, the Holy Ghost is speaking through Paul to identify what God's will is. God's will is that the blessing of Abraham, can anybody argue that the goodness and the things that have been talked about, the blessings that Moses has enumerated, would anybody say that's not the blessing of Abraham? Of course it is. And Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law so that we might receive the blessing of Abraham and the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now when Jesus comes on the scene, we've seen that he identifies and magnifies the attitude of the heart much more than the material possessions. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, he sums up the things that he's been talking about, God's provision for us. He says, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. So Jesus is talking about putting first things first. He's talking about identifying for ourselves, us identifying for ourselves, where our heart is. In Luke chapter 12, he talks about the difference between serving God or serving money. He gives them the key to how to keep your heart right toward God. He says, give and lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Because where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. So Jesus emphasized the heart, the condition of the heart. Now we see that taking place in the Old Testament. We see that in Abraham's life. We see that in Isaac's life. And we see that in Jacob's life. Genesis chapter 14 tells us, and we've looked at that several times. It tells us about how Abraham delivered his nephew Lot and, and all of his family and all of their possessions from the bondage of an enemy of Israel that came out against them. And when he delivers them, he pays tithes unto Melchizedek. But it shows his attitude of heart because when the king of Sodom said, you take the things, give me the people, and you take all the spoils of war, Abraham wouldn't do it. And the reason he wouldn't do it is what's important. He said, I don't want you to be able to say you made me rich. He knew God had made him rich. And his, con his condition of heart, his attitude of heart toward God, his relationship with God was more important than the money or the increase. We see the same thing in Isaac's life. We see Isaac obeying the word of the Lord and God prospering him. Even in the midst of a famine, he received a hundredfold in the middle of a great drought. Now, he was the only one that did. There was nobody else that was in the middle of or affected by that famine that got the results that he did. We see at the end of his life how he counts the blessing of God upon his children as such a great and important thing. Jacob, the son that received the firstborn inheritance, Jacob was a deceiver. He deceived his father to get that blessing. And he winds up with a, a, a father-in-law that takes advantage of him and deceives him even greater than he had his father. But he vows a vow unto the Lord. He said, if you'll bring me, he had to leave the land that he was in because he was afraid his brother would kill him for what he did. But he says to the Lord, if you'll bring me back to this land with abundance, then I'll pay the tithes unto you as well, just like my grandfather did. And that's exactly what God did. When he came back some 20 years later, he came back with what the Bible calls two bands. Now, the only way to interpret that is double rich. Twice as much, he possessed twice as much as what somebody would consider a rich man to have. So we see in all three of those, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the forefathers of Israel, 
we see that their attitude of heart was such that God meant more to them than the money or the possessions. And that's all God's looking for from us. That's why it's so important to keep a thankful heart. That's why it's so important for us to not take for granted or to not develop this entitled mentality. But instead to remember that it's God that did it for us. Now we read in Deuteronomy chapter 8 how that God has given us the power to get wealth. That power to get wealth is the force of faith. That's the only thing it can be. Because that's the only way we can partake of and take hold of what God has provided for us. Now Jesus said, I think it's Matthew chapter 12. Jesus said something very important about the kingdom of God. I'll tell you what, let's look at this rather than me just refer to it. It's Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, let's start reading in verse 7 to get the context. As they departed, Jesus began to say unto the multitudes concerning John, What went ye out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind? But what went you out to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in the king's houses. But what went ye out for to see? A prophet? Yea, and I say unto you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, who shall prepare thy way before thee. Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there has not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he, greater than John. Folks, we need to realize the place that we hold in God's plan, in his redemptive plan. He said the one that's least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than the greatest of the prophets of the old covenant. Now look at verse 12. He said, and from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. And the violent take it by force. From the days of John the Baptist, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. Now notice there's a possessing, there's a seizing, there's a taking hold of what Jesus calls the kingdom of heaven. Now remember, he's already defined what the kingdom of heaven is. He defined it in the Lord's prayers we mentioned earlier. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. So the kingdom of heaven would have to be the same here, wouldn't it? Where the will of God is done in your life just like it is in heaven. So he says this kingdom of heaven, this blessing of God, this way that God wants it to be for us. And I know a lot of the church argues about this. I know that not everybody accepts this. Most of the church, it seems, has the attitude or the idea that whatever God wants is what will happen. Well, you just can't square that up with the rest of the word. Because if we accept the results as proof of what God wants, then that means he wants good things for some people and bad things for other people. But that can't be true for the Bible to be true when it says God's no respecter of persons. God's will can't be different for you concerning healing than it is toward me concerning healing. Unless he's a respecter of persons. And if he is, then the Bible's a lie. If the Bible's a lie, we don't know what part of it to believe. God can't want one thing for your prosperity and want something else for my prosperity. Or else he'd be a respecter of persons. And again, the Bible becomes a lie. So here where he's talking about the kingdom of heaven, where the will of God is done in our lives, here on the earth just like it is in heaven, we would have to identify that the things that Jesus paid the price for, shed his blood for, are the benefits of the kingdom of heaven that Jesus is talking about or includes. Now Isaiah 53, 5 gives us a summary statement of what Jesus died for. Isaiah 53, 5 gives us a summary statement of what Jesus died for. And it says he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. So Jesus paid the price for sin, both personal sin and, 
and the original sin of Adam. And then Jesus paid the price for sickness and disease. The Bible says God made him sick. He laid upon him the sickness of man so that we through his stripes might be healed. But right in the middle of that verse, right in the middle of that summary statement verse of Isaiah 53, 5, it tells us that Jesus was chastised for our peace. That word peace is the same word prosperity in Psalm 35, verse 27. You remember where we started? Let them shout for joy that favor my righteous cause. And yea, let them say continually that the Lord be magnified, which has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. That word prosperity is the same word peace over in Isaiah 53, 5. The chastisement of our peace, the payment, the punishment of our poverty was upon him so that we could walk in the prosperity that he delights in. And folks, again, the Bible says, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. Over and over and over again, we see the same pattern bringing us to the same conclusion. It's by faith that we take hold of the things of God. It's by faith that we take hold of the redemption of God. It's by faith that we take hold of the benefits of Jesus shedding his blood. So here where it says, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. That can't be force against other people. Paul wrote by the Holy Ghost that we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. So the violence he's talking about that takes hold or that seizes the kingdom of heaven can't be fighting against people. Well, what is it then? It's the force of faith. The violent force that we have to take hold of or that we have to take hold of the blessings of God, the kingdom of heaven blessings, is the force of faith, believing in our heart and saying with our mouth. Again and again and again, it brings us to the same place. God wills for us to have it and leaves it up to us to exercise our faith to take hold of it. Now I want you to compare two things with me. I want you to look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 21. Well, let's back up to verse 20. It says, Now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be you reconciled unto God. Now the word reconciled is the word exchange. It means a mutual exchange. One thing is given and another thing is received. The exchange it's talking about is the sacrifice of Jesus he took upon himself punishment. He became the substitute for mankind. And through the shedding of his blood, something was given as a satisfaction of justice for the sin of man to receive something else in exchange. So it says, for he, speaking of God, he, God, has made him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now clearly this is talking about Jesus paying the price for sin. And that's as far as what most of the, most of the church world, it seems, believes that Jesus did pay the price or what he paid the price for. So here it's saying that Jesus made an exchange, a divine exchange. Man was separated from God. He was estranged from God. He was spiritually dead. And the only thing that could change that is a righteous punishment which culminated in the shedding of Jesus' blood so that we might ex accept or have the exchange of his righteousness. He took his righteousness and offered it for us. And so he took our spiritual death upon him so that we could take our righteous his righteousness on us. Notice this substitute. Notice the substitutionary work. Jesus paid the price. It was all part of God's plan. God made Jesus to be sin so that we might be made righteous. Compare that with 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Again, I'll remind you of the summary statement of Isaiah 53, 5. 
He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Original sin and personal sin. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. The chastisement of our prosperity was upon him. And with his stripes we were healed. Now can we confirm that from the New Testament? Yeah. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be rich. Again, it's talking about an exchange. Notice it identifies this with the grace of God. Now, what is the grace of God? What is the foundation for, for redemption? Well, the Bible says you're saved by grace through faith. So God's whole redemptive plan was based on the grace of God. And Paul, again by the Holy Ghost, connects the sacrifice that Jesus made concerning poverty with the grace of God. He's telling us, just like Jesus was made sin for us so that we might be made righteous, he's saying Jesus was made poor so that we might be made rich. Now the question is, when was Jesus made poor? A lot of people would say Jesus was poor here on the earth. And they'll pull out a few scriptures, isolated scriptures, like, for example, where Jesus said, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Well, now the Bible teaches us from the beginning of the Old Testament. The Bible teaches us that children take care of their parents. That children, as they reach adulthood, are to take care of their parents. The New Testament says the same thing. 1 Timothy chapter 5, I believe it is, verse 8, around verse 8 somewhere. It says, a man that doesn't provide for his own, especially for the household of faith, has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Folks, if Jesus isn't providing for his mom, his dad has apparently died before he enters into his earthly ministry. But if Jesus doesn't provide for his mom, then he becomes, according to what Paul said by the Holy Ghost, worse than an infidel. He's denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. So Jesus, in keeping of the law, had to be the one that provided for his mom. Well, if he doesn't have a house, there's nowhere to provide for. See, when Jesus said the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, it's talking about on these campaigns that he went out on when he traveled to different parts of Israel. He didn't have anywhere to go. He didn't have anyone providing for him or taking care of him in that respect. But there are several places, several different translations that identify that the house, that the four guys carrying the crippled man on the cot, you remember the story, they couldn't get into the house any other way, so they went up on the roof and tore the roof off, let him down by the ropes. Several translations identify that that was Jesus' house. He was certainly in his hometown. We know that, uh, that he moved to Capernaum. The Bible's real clear on that. Well, how could he have moved from Nazareth to Capernaum if he didn't have somewhere that he was going, if he didn't have a house there in the city? Furthermore, the Bible says that Jesus had a treasury. He had a treasurer. Judas Iscariot was the treasurer, and the Bible says he was stealing money from the bag. So it tells us that he had money. The Bible specifically identifies that many rich women, wives of men in, in positions of power, ministered to him of their substance. Well, that must be at least one source, one place that the money came from that they used in their treasury. Furthermore, Jesus had a coat that was made from one piece of cloth. It was a seamless coat. It might be something similar to Joseph's coat of many colors. And it was so valuable that the Roman soldiers gambled for it rather than taking it apart, cutting it into, into smaller pieces. Well, you wouldn't do that with a homeless guy's clothes, would you? Can you imagine something like that taking place today? where the people involved said, yeah, I'm in on that. I, I want that ragged coat. 
So when was Jesus made poor? Well, I guess figuratively we could say that being sent to the earth from heaven is certainly a step down. But if Jesus had the things that he needed here on the earth, the monetary things that he needed, the treasury and the treasurer and all that other kind of stuff, if he had those things in his possession or readily available, and remember the Bible talks about the multitude that went with him. Most Bible scholars agree that Jesus had anywhere from 100 to 120 people that followed him consistently. We do know that he sure didn't have to look around to find more than 70 when he sends them out. So Jesus couldn't have been poor on, in, by earthly standards. Well, then when was he made poor? At the same time he was made sin. At the same time he was made sick. When he was on the cross carrying out the substitutionary work for the benefit of mankind. Jesus was made sin so that you could be made righteous. He was made sick so that you might be healed. He was made poverty so that you through his poverty might be made rich. Now the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 22. It says the blessing of the Lord makes rich and he adds no sorrow to it. See folks there's two ways to get rich in this world. One by doing it yourself. And the other is by letting God prosper you. Taking hold of the blessing of prosperity by faith. Now there's, there's going to be a fight. The Bible talks about the fight of faith. The Bible talks about that we just looked at the violent taking the kingdom of heaven by force. There's going to be a fight. The devil's going to try to oppose you and resist you every step of the way because he doesn't want you to find out how good God is and he doesn't want you to walk in the fullness of what God has done. Now the difference between doing it yourself and letting God do it for you through his word is sorrow. The blessing of the Lord makes rich and he has no sorrow to it. Folks, if just being rich was the issue, then we'd never have any rich people that commit suicide. But we've seen situations and heard in, in just our own past about how people attain great success, many times great wealth, and they were just as empty then as they were when they started pursuing it. But if you let God do it, if you do it God's way, by accepting what his word says belongs to you, the revealed will of God for your abundance, and taking hold of it by faith. In that respect, there's no sorrow to it. That's when wealth really brings joy into your life. See, money by itself can't make you happy. But money received because of God's goodness sure can. And as such... Most Christians don't realize that money is spiritual. In the same way that healing is spiritual. Now the result of healing is physical well-being. But the origin of God's healing power is spiritual. It's due to an exchange. Jesus was made sick so that you might be healed. In the same way, the blessing of prosperity is spiritual. The origin of prosperity is spiritual. The result of prosperity is material well-being and material possessions. But it has a spiritual origin. As such, money becomes spiritual too. Now here's how money is spiritual. Money is the representation of everything about you and who you are. Because the money that we have is the money that we have gained through the work that we do with our lives. And so when we trade money, when we exchange money for goods and services, it's connecting people. It's connecting people. The Jews are real, real strong on this point. They go into all kinds of detail about how transactions, every transaction becomes a monetary thing at some point in time. Money is spiritual. 
That's why when you give your money, you can put treasure in heaven. That's why giving establishes treasure in heaven. Because where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. In other words, where your money is, that's where your heart is. So when Jesus told the rich young ruler to sell what he had and give to the poor, he's encouraging him to enter into a spiritual transaction. He would give the money to identify where his heart is and he would receive back this thing called treasure in heaven that provides the favor of God on your life. So when the Bible says the blessing of the Lord makes rich and he adds no sorrow to it, it's talking about a spiritual exchange. It's talking about a spiritual exchange. Now turn back with me to the book of Proverbs. I want you to see some things here. There's a verse of scripture that I want to start with and then show you some others. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 24. It says the, uh, wait a minute, that's not the one I want. Where, where is it? Proverbs chapter 10, verse 4. Notice this one with me. It says, he becometh poor that dealeth with a slack hand. But the hand of the diligent makes rich. But the hand of the diligent makes rich. Now there are a couple of things that the Bible refers to here in the book of Proverbs that are character traits to avoid. Character traits to avoid. Here where it says the hand of the diligent makes rich. There's no success in life unless you're diligent about what you do. There's nothing really that works for you unless you are diligent about it. Now, we would certainly apply that to diligence where the word is concerned. Diligence where our belief is concerned. Diligence where our confession is concerned. Spiritual diligence brings wealth. It'll bring success in any and every area that it's applied. But here it tells us very specifically that the hand of the diligent makes rich. Now there's a a word that's used in the Old Testament, particularly here in the book of Proverbs. There's a word that's used that's the word slothful. Let me read to you from some of the things that uh, that it says about being slothful in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 24, it says, The hand of the diligent shall bear rule, but the slothful shall be under tribute. Now, this word slothful is used um, how many times? I think it's 15 times in the Old Testament. This Hebrew word for slothful. And it's most often translated deceitful or deceit. Here in Proverbs, it's it's used as slothful which we think of as being lazy and there's an element of truth to that but it goes further than just being lazy it speaks of the entitlement attitude that the bible warns us against see there's so much of this present day modern day world that we live in because we particularly we in america have enjoyed Blessings beyond anything that any other nation has in, uh, experienced for much longer than any other nation ever experienced it. That has created a, a, an entitlement mentality. But some of these character traits, two specific character traits, are used by the Bible, and again, we would have to say by the Holy Ghost to instruct us. Because these character traits, if developed or allowed to operate in our lives, will rob us of God's blessing. So here where it says, the first one that we'll read, the hand of the diligent shall bear rule, but the slothful shall be under tribute. 
You remember in the Old Testament, what did we read in Deuteronomy chapter 28? One of the blessings was that you'll be the head and not the tail. Well, it's saying this deceitfulness and laziness will make you the tail. Verse 27, Proverbs chapter 12, verse 27. It says, A slothful man roasteth not that which he took in hunting, but the substance of a diligent man is precious. One characteristic of this slothfulness, this deceitfulness or laziness, is that people that, are, uh, that have this character trait are operating in this slothfulness don't appreciate what they have. They generally think whatever they have is not enough, so they count what they have as worth nothing. But the diligent doesn't look at it like that. The diligent appreciates whatever he has. Again, that speaks to a thankful attitude or appreciative heart to me. Another place that it's used is in Proverbs chapter 15, verse 19. It says, The way of the slothful man is like a hedge of thorns, but the way of the righteous is made plain. You ever been out walking in the woods or somewhere and get caught in a bramble bush? Stuck by briars. I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama, outside Birmingham, Alabama, and there were trees and forests and everything all around us. We had the time of our lives playing in the, in the woods. But there would be times where we'd be running through the woods and all of a sudden one of us would scream for bloody murder. And everybody knew what happened. They ran into a briar bush, and they're bit by bit, second by second trying to extricate themselves from that well here it's talking about something a lot bigger than that it's talking about a hedge of thorns how do you escape from a hedge of thorns well you don't just go straight in or straight out you have to take a circuitous route to avoid the pricks of the briars and the thorns but it's not that way for a righteous man the righteous have clear sailing, clear direction. Another one that's used is in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 9. It says, He also that is slothful in his work is brother to him that is a great waster. Folks, here's the second characteristic that the Bible warns you against in the book of Proverbs. God's not a waster and neither are his people. Again, it talks about appreciation or implies appreciation for what you have. Remember when Jesus fed the 5,000 and then again in another place fed the 7,000? In both cases, Jesus told the disciples after the great miracle had been done where the multiplying of the loaves and the fishes were concerned, Jesus gave his disciples instruction to gather up that which was left, left out or left over. The Bible talks about the basketfuls that were left over. Why did Jesus want to gather those up or want his disciples to gather those up? Why didn't Jesus take the attitude that, well, this is no big deal. Just leave it there. Let the birds of the air feed from these things. There's always more where that came from. Well, the only reason I can imagine that Jesus would want them gathered up is to give to the poor. The Bible talks about when Judas left the upper room to go his, do his work of betrayal, the other disciples thought that he was leaving to go give to the poor. If Judas, every time Judas leaves, people think that he's giving to the poor at Jesus' direction, Jesus must have done a lot of giving to the poor. I mean, if you got up and left the room, I would assume you're headed to the bathroom not to go to the, give to the poor. You see the point, I hope. But I've noticed that people that take the attitude, even prosperity preachers, that take the attitude that there's always more where that came from, I see them going through a lot more trouble than it looks to me like they need to. God doesn't have a wasteful mentality, and he doesn't want you and I to have one either. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 24. A slothful man hideth his hand in his bosom and will not so much as bring it to his mouth again. There's another verse of scripture that says the, basically the same thing. Proverbs 26, verse 15. The slothful hides, hides his hand in his bosom, 
and it grieves him to bring it again to his mouth. In other words, this character trait is revealed by a slothful man that won't even take the time to feed himself. There was a commercial several years back. I think it was a Carl's Jr. commercial. And it said something like this. It said, if it wasn't for us, most single men would go hungry. <laughs> there may be some truth to that. And the attitude is, or the, the, the context is, in these verses of Scripture, that a slothful person, somebody that's lazy, and remember the, the laziness we're talking about is a lack of faith or unbelief. They don't appreciate what they have, and they won't even use it. They won't even overcome their laziness to use it for their own benefit. They just want somebody to take care of them. They just want things to work out on their own. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 25, it says, The desire of sloth, the slothful killeth him, for his hands refuse to labor. All he does is daydream. All he does is escape reality by looking for something to happen for him or to him. And it robs him of life. Proverbs 22, verse 13, it says, A slothful man saith, There's a lion outside. I shall be slain in the streets. There's no end to the excuses that lazy people will give. <laughs> Proverbs chapter 26, verse 14, we'll stop with this one. It says, As the door turns upon his hinges, so does the slothful upon his bed. Folks, I know the, the cliche is all the 30-something-year-olds that are living in their parents' basement and all that kind of stuff, but there's some real truth to that. There's some real spiritual truth to things like that. That's not the way God wants us to operate. The hand of the diligent makes rich. Now, certainly we need to be, and I believe this first and foremost, we need to be spiritually diligent. But we need to be diligent in the things that God gives us to do, too. If we can't be faithful in the little things, who will deliver into our hands the true riches of God? Folks, everything that the Bible talks about, Old Testament and New Testament, concerning God's will for your life, concerning God's desire for your abundance, and the, the, the great measures that he went to through the shedding of Jesus' blood, to provide prosperity and abundance for you. If the Old Testament, if the Jews in the Old Testament experience prosperity as God's servants, then as God's children under the New Covenant, we ought to be experiencing double blessing, super prosperity. Because God loves and provides for his children much more than he ever did for his servant. We have a better covenant established upon better promises. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, so that the blessing of Abraham might come on us. I firmly believe that if we prepare our hearts and extend our faith toward all the blessings of God, including prosperity, we put ourselves in a position where God, through our faithfulness, can honor his word to make us a great blessing in the earth before Jesus returns. Let's pray. Father, we love you so much and we thank you for all of your goodness and your mercy. We thank you, Father, that Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses and with his stripes we were healed. We thank you, Father, that you made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And Father, we also thank you that Jesus was made poor. The chastisement of our peace was upon him so that we through his poverty have been made rich. Father, we don't want to get things out of order 
We don't want to magnify prosperity. But rather, we want to seek your righteousness so that all the kingdom of heaven blessings would be ours. Thank you, Father, for the power to get wealth. Therefore, we declare that we are living in the promised land. We've been delivered from the bondage of Satan. And we're living in the abundance, the material possessions, the material abundance that Jesus paid the price for us to have. And we declare by faith that we walk in health because Jesus shed his blood for that too. Thank you, Lord, that you were wounded for our transgression. You were bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon you. And with your stripes, we are healed. Father, we thank you for not leaving anything out. We thank you for providing for us in every respect and in every regard. We therefore declare that we lack no good thing. We declare that the favor of God is upon us and the blessing of the Lord makes us rich. We magnify you, Heavenly Father, for your great love. We magnify you, Lord Jesus, for the work that you accomplished on our behalf. Thank you for being our substitute, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, let's all stand. Before we go, let's lift our hands. Let's thank him for his goodness. Whatever circumstance you and I may be facing, he's already provided the way out. And that way, that way out is through his word, through faith in his word, and through the confession of our lips. So say it after me. I declare that I am righteous by the blood of Jesus. I declare that I'm healed by the stripes of Jesus. And I declare that I am prosperous by the substitutionary work of Jesus himself. Thank him because that's true. No, you thank him because that's true. Bless you, Heavenly Father. We thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. Hallelujah. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, come on back and be with us tonight for Healing School if you can. Have a great afternoon. And you're dismissed.